When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. Hey everyone, I'm George Simon. I want you to know I do a lot of podcasts. I love doing podcasts. And I've got a new one that I love doing. And I want you to listen to it. Crazy Train Radio. Another one of the best. You'll enjoy it. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, and one person gets a little irritated when I do that, but whatever. 
my uh, sandbox, as they like to say. So, and people know I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. Well, obviously, as of today on 12-6-23, when we record this, we are back with this encyclopedia of professional wrestling. And yeah, yeah, we made the joke last week about the grandkids and all that fun stuff. But the episode was actually part one of this was released today on 12-6. And anyway, we were having a good conversation before we hit the record button. And I felt, I told him, we got to hit the record button because this is, we'll go off on tangents here, folks, uh, because both of our love with this business of professional wrestling. But obviously you heard this man. He is an author of four different books and his last one or latest one, I should say, is Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling, from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. Please welcome back, and it's going to be a fun conversation, just how we start it, Mr. George Shire. Cheers, sir. How are you? Thank you, Jonathan. You know, last last week when we were going at it, um, you, you and I both realized that, holy cow, we had went two hours. And uh, we we realized that we hadn't even put the frosting on the cake yet. Exactly. I guess we're just going to try to pick up where we left off. And I I want you to ask questions. I'll give answers. And if I don't know it, I'll tell you. And if I do know it, I'll tell you. And if I offer an opinion, I'll tell you that's what it is, too. But bottom line is I love facts. So that's what we'll try. Yes. But, you know, let's stay with where we were going here right before we hit the little red button and folks we were talking about folks that were and i brought up the name terry funk because we were talking about the panel we did a couple weeks ago and things like that and different ways we can do things and we i brought up the name terry funk and because George had recommend we can always talk about heels we can do this we can do you know just different ways we can go with that concept now, and I brought up the name Terry Funk, which obviously folks heard our tribute episode with Brian Young and Terry Sullivan, uh, who was known for Detroit wrestling and such. I, you know Terry, right? I do. I do. Okay. Good guy. And obviously, I the name Terry Funk popped in my head because obviously later in his career, and even after he retired after the 15th or 16th time, as I joke about that, because people no, never cool. fully retire. Yeah. But Terry was beloved, you know, ECW, all that stuff. And the the veteran, beloved veteran. And I asked George if he thought he was better as a heel or face. And you mentioned heel. And the reason I was thinking along those lines with that, because obviously he was beloved in Amarillo, in that territory. You know, his father started that territory that him and his brother took over. That story has obviously been told. Now, obviously, when Terry became NWA champ for that time period that he was, he won it from, from I'm thinking, this ain't the whiskey talking, folks. He won it from Harley Race, correct, in Toronto? Uh, Terry Funk won the title from Jack Briscoe. Okay. Yeah, I knew because they're all... Right. Right. He won it from Jack Briscoe and then 
Terry in turn lost it to Harley. Okay, I had my chance. Harley holds the distinction of being the only champion to beat two brothers for the work for the NWA title. Yeah, so that's why I had that mixed up, folks. Because yep. I know the history, obviously, but I know it was Toronto that Terry had won yep. the belt. Yep. But yep. the reason I was going with that and why my train of thought was was like it was is because obviously in the home territory of Amarillo, he's obviously the beloved babyface and damn those Briscoes and all these mm-hmm. other guys that came in. But when, and correct me if I'm wrong, George, but when the NWA champion, whether it was Terry or Harley Race or Briscoe or whoever, went to the other territories to defend the belt, for their week or 10 days, whenever they would be in the loop of that territory, they would usually work heel, correct? Well, not all the time. Uh, We had, we had discussed this, I think briefly when we were talking about our three B's, Um, the NWA champion had a unique formula because they, the, the champion was not necessarily just in one territory, like the AWA champion, for the most part, wrestled for Vern Gagne. Yes. And yes. the WWF champion back in the day, you know, Bruno San Martino, Bob Backlund, uh, they wrestled for Vince McMahon. Yeah. And they didn't go outside their territory. Now, the NWA, you know, this is always tricky when I say this, but it wasn't really um, a territory. It was more a champion if that makes sense, because these promoters around the country would all get together every year at an annual meeting, which is what started the NWA in the first place in 1948. Mm -hmm. But they would get together at their annual meeting. They would discuss how the champion is doing, how the champion is drawing, you know, um, the whole bit. And they would take votes on, you know, do we want to keep so-and-so as champion or do we want someone else to take over the over the rain for a while. Their formula was usually around two to three years. They wanted their guy to hold the belt. Didn't always happen that way through the circumstances. Like a Jack Briscoe and such. But to answer your question, because they were the, the champion, NWA champion was going into different cities around, you know, they'd be in Florida. They could be in Texas. They could defend out in California. They might defend up in Portland. They could be in St. Louis. They could go to Australia. Um, the, the champion usually had to go into the territory and face the challenger that that particular territory or town was touting as the leading challenger. Now, it might be a babyface. You know, they could have that guy that's just wowing the crowds in, in the territory and and he's beating, you know, everybody and the crowds are paying to see him. And when the champion comes in, well, naturally, he's got to kind of play the heel here because those fans are going to cheer their baby face. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there were instances when the territory that was getting the champion coming in, they might have this rebel rouser, roughhouse, ruth- net, ruthless individual. And, you know, he... He earned a title shot, fans, and he's going to have a chance at the world champion. Well, here comes, whether it be Briscoe or Race or Dory Jr., Terry. Well, now 
they become the baby because they're going to try to prevent this guy from taking the title and the fans will cheer this. The other thing that the NWA did really well was when they were grooming their next champion, they would send that wrestler around the circuit and generally he would lose matches to top wrestlers. So using uh, Terry Funk, for example, before he won the title, he'd go around some towns and he'd end up losing to a top guy in a town. The, the whole premise of that was that town was building up their guy because now all of a sudden fans, we just got news that Terry Funk won the world title up in Toronto. Whoa. Their hero had gotten a victory over him a month ago or two months ago or two weeks ago, whatever it was. So now you've got a ready-made challenger for that new champion, and he can come to town, and you believe that your guy can beat him because he already won a, a match against him. So the, generally, the new potential NWA champion, if you looked at his results, you'll see a losing streak before he becomes champion. He's going around losing to people. And, I mean, he's not staying in the territory, so he's not beat 12 times. He, he's going in and he loses to, to the top dog, Get, gets a victory. Maybe he gets two victories over. But now when he's champ, now there's that believability. And that's how they built up their champions. But they could do heel or baby depending on the thing. Now, I want to answer your question about whether I think Terry was a better heel or a better baby. I think Terry was a better heel because I think, and this statement that I'm making right now is opinion. I don't think Terry was as good of a wrestler as Dory was. Dory was a better wrestler. Dory both could, had great amateur careers, by the way. So they both did. Yes. Yes. But, but I understand what you're saying with this. Dory was the Dory was the better mat wrestler. He he really was the better technical wrestler. They used the term scientific wrestler back in the day. Yeah. But Terry, he was more prone to um he he was he relied more on non-wrestling moves and some of his character, his personality. He had a different personality than Dory. <laughs> you think you know, definitely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he come off. He could come off as, as the uh, the loose cannon, and he he could play that part well. So, I think he made a better heel. But I also know that when he wrestled against guys that were heels, uh, Terry could make you believe that he was Luthez. I hope well, that answered the question. No, you did. Well, speaking of the. At least the NWA champion, and like I said, we're going to be all over the place, folks. A lot to cover. I was thinking about this book that I just pulled from the bookshelf as you were answering a question, and it just so happens that this guy got his. And we didn't talk about him specifically last week for from the AWA, but he was part of that seventy-two class that Vern, or I should say, seventy-two camp, because uh, mm -hmm. you brought that up with a uh, Greg Gagne and all Greg Gagne, but yep. it's but that class it was the last world champion legacy of nature boy Ric Flair Tim Hornbreaker's I, book I've got it I've got it I've read it 
Yes. So obviously Flair was part of that class learning from Vern and stuff. And I'm not going to, I'm unbiased here, but, or I try to be at least, but obviously Rick got his start. He's from Minnesota. The whole, that story has been told 30 for 30 and throughout the years, the different forms, a couple of documentaries, the books, all that fun stuff. But was Rick the last great, and I'll sit, throw this word in there, touring champion? Because the way you described it, the with the AWA, the WWWF, yeah. and yeah, all that. Um, technically speaking, yes, when you call it touring champion. Um, I, I want to say this because. It's ironic that just this afternoon I was actually having a discussion with someone about Ric Flair and Nick Bockwinkel. And we were kind of talking about the accolades between the two of them, which was the better champion or the better worker. Um, I love, you know, I love Nick Bockwinkel. Let's just yes. get that off right on the table here. Nick, in, as far as I'm concerned, he could he could walk on water. He, he was that good. But let me tell you, and I mean this sincerely, Ric Flair was phenomenal. He, 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 what he did was he didn't have nearly, and even though he came from Vern's camp and he obviously had the, the coaching of Billy Robinson, who you couldn't get much better than that if you want to learn uh, wrestling. But Rick relied more on his his personality, his his character, his charisma, his his vocabulary. His able to to go off on the microphone, and and the bottom line with any wrestler, I don't care who they were, if they could grab the fans' attention and get that fan to the auditorium or the arena to see them wrestle, they were great. And not all of them were absolutely great wrestlers. Now, when I, the guy that I was talking to today, Nick Bockwinkle was a champion that when he went into a match, with regardless of who it was, and I used the example with the guy I was talking to, I said, I saw Nick wrestle Billy Robinson, I swear, over 100 times in singles matches. And, and there were probably another 100 times in tag team that I saw Nick and Billy confront one another. What I find unique is that in those, and I'm just going to say 100 singles matches, people say, well, this can't be true, but I'm telling you this is the way I see it. I never saw the same match. I saw it last week. Match, and I brought that up last week. Nick had the ability as champion to go into the ring to the challenger he was wrestling. And Nick had the ability to wrestle that guy's match. He made that guy, which is a formula for a good champion, to make that guy look better than he probably is and make him look like he's a whirlwind, make it look like Nick is losing. But Nick wrestled his match. So Nick made different moves. Nick did different things. Now, when I watch Ric Flair, I I tease. I'm I'm somewhat facetious when I say this, but 
there, there's some truth in it. If I saw one Ric Flair match, I saw them all. Because when I saw Ric Flair, it was the same entrance, the same, whoa. And, you know, the, the introduction and the strutting and then the match and then the going into the turn or the end of the ring ropes, the turnbuckle over the top down to the floor. You know, the same moves at the same time, regardless of who his opponent was. Now, he still had great matches. He still could make other challengers look good. But he was a different type of a wrestler. If you got in the ring with Ric Flair, you had to wrestle Ric Flair, his style. But if you got in the ring with Nick Bockwinkle, you could wrestle your style and Nick would adopt it. Would adopt it. Nick would adapt to you and, and make the match different. Nick was not methodical and, well, I hate to use the word rehearsed, like Ric Flair appeared to be. So if I watch Nick Ric Flair five nights in a row, I see the same moves that at the same time of the match, the same actions. If I watch five Nick Bockwinkle matches, I see five different Nick Bockwinkles. Now, I'm not saying you never see the same move. Don't, don't take that out of context. But I'm saying you see a guy who could – and this is why I said last week when Nick Bockwinkle would go into the locker room before he was going to wrestle Billy Robinson. I told you that Billy demanded respect. Billy yes. was a tough egg. He was a tough egg. You know, a, a, a strange egg. But a good wrestler. Most people didn't like to work with Billy like we talked about last week because Billy, he wanted you to give him control. He wanted you to let him call the match. He wanted him, he wanted to put Billy over. He wanted to showcase and he was good. So Nick says, before my matches with Billy, and I quoted him last week, I said, I, he goes into the locker room, he walks up to him, he says, Well, William, what do you want to do tonight? What do you want to do tonight? And mm -hmm. once he did that, Billy's Billy's been given control. Now, in most matches, it's back in that era. Generally, the heel was the one to call the match throughout the throughout the match. But Nick told me he said I could give Billy that power to call the match as much as we need to, without. I'm still not going to win the match or, or come away disqualified and keep the title or whatever it is. And they had phenomenal matches. And I, I think I brought this up because I used to hear people say, when we go to the Minneapolis or the St. Paul auditorium, we've seen Billy and Nick in the main event, you know, six times this year. And there was a guy, he sat just a couple over from me. He says, you know, every time I come here, it's Billy Robinson, Billy Robinson, you know, it's like, can we have a different match? And I'm thinking, I don't think this guy's paying attention. It isn't just the paper, Nick Bockwinkle versus Billy Robinson. It's a different match. So I don't know. I, I think I kicked that horse to death. But that's that's the way I look at the two champions, Flair and Bockwinkle. And I mean no disrespect to with this, but – when you mentioned about uh, things with Flair, as far as the match structure, mm -hmm. A, B, C, you're going to hit 
ass over tea cut on a corner to this that you know just certain things that flair did and right. flair is one of the best at what he did and drew and it, people but it in. worked but see yeah. that's the key it worked and it drew yes. people so i'm not criticizing no but the guy no, who, not at all but the guy who i was thinking of when you brought that up and i i may or may not get shit but i don't care at this point uh with thinking that was bret hart later in his career and I say that in terms of, okay, like towards the end of the match, it'd be working the leg, elbow off the second row. You know, there was just certain beats to a Bret Hart match. You know, okay, lead to the sharpshooter, which is what you're supposed to do, lead to a guy's right. finish. Well, right. You're going you're gonna to direct the fans, pull the fans in so yeah. they know what you're doing. And they're expecting it too. Let's, let's make that clear. Yeah. So, you know, Bret Hart of my generation – would think the same thing with the as far as match structure, that last third of the match, let's say. Right, right. But you know, I wanted to ask you this because obviously he got his start. He's from Minnesota, all that fun stuff. And say what you will about him, you know, for whatever reason. But I always found interest in Jesse the Body Venture, Governor Venture. So was he the best of wrestlers? No, but he talked people into the building, the body, the physique. You know, there was other things that attracted people to Jesse wrestling-wise. What was it wrestling-wise when I say Jesse Ventura that you think of? I, I'll be honest and I'll tell you, I see a guy who brought fans into the building. He had a way of either angering you or enamoring you, whatever the case may be. Jesse was always a heel when we had him. Um, and that's basically what he spent his career as. He was more of a heel. He was obnoxious. He was uh, a braggart. He was uh, egotistical. This was his, this was his interview, his interview style, his wrestling style. And but the thing is, Jesse and I could I could name you 10 wrestlers right now that would tell you you get in the ring with Jesse and you literally had to do everything for him. As far as the actual match goes, Jesse was he was not easy to work with because he was stiff. He didn't have the 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 fluid, the fluidity. Is that such a word where he could do things? that looks smooth and natural, but that didn't matter for him because he drew people. And, you know, the irony of all of this is, is that as many times as myself and some of the purists, we want to talk about the pro wrestling kayfabe era and try to make it as real and, and real wrestling. More often than not, it was the freaks and the goons that were drawing the people in more than Johnny Good Guy. You know, it the the promoters would put anybody on their card and in the main event if they knew the fans were going to line up at the ticket office. It's that simple. It didn't matter if the guy if he was as boring as grass growing. If he drew people, they were gonna they were gonna put him on the card. So we saw a lot of people. Now the genius of Jesse Ventura 
is that, no, Jesse was not arrested. If you were going in there to see Jesse do any type, I mean, it, even if you were just going to go hold for hold, Jesse couldn't do it. So they stuck him with Adrian Adonis. Now, Adrian, Keith Franks was his real name, but they <laughs> stuck him with Adrian. And Adrian had the technical skills. Adrian was the bumper. He was the one that could take the bumps. He was the one that could, could you know, do the arm locks, leg locks, head locks, flip, flip tosses, you know, you name it. Adrian was good at it. And together they meshed because they covered up each other's inadequacies. Now, on the other hand, I don't know how many interviews you ever heard uh, heard Adrian do. I wouldn't say he was horrible, but he wasn't good. He, he had a tendency to, at times, seem like he was stumbling for the next thought or stumbling over words. And I'm not insulting him. I loved Adrian Adonis as a worker. I thought he was great. Tough as nails, uh, too. But he, and yes, and he was a legit tough guy. He just didn't have the mic skills. So again, that magic combo. Let Jesse do the talking and let Adrian do the wrestling. And you've got a you've got a tag team that is made in heaven. And they drew money. Now, did I think they were the greatest team in the world? Not really. I like I like some of the older guys like Nick and Ray and Hannick and Race and the Bashan brothers and and the Kelmakoff brothers. And when I look at Jesse and Adrian, I, I saw two guys that, you know, back in other matches, I'd say they, they wouldn't have been able to hold their own, but they drew money. So exactly. As Jim Ross would say, long as you're putting asses every 18 inches, whether you're the <laughs> national guard armory or you're at, you know, the Madison square garden, or you're at, the Silverdome for 93000 for WrestleMania 3. As long yeah. as people are buying the tickets, that's all that mattered. Well, and, and every wrestler, and I know, I think you asked on, when we had the talk last week, you asked me about how does a wrestler show his worth or prove his yes. worth. I think we you mentioned that. And that kind of leads into this conversation. You're always going to prove your worth by how much money you can make for the company. Or how many fans you can get to line up and buy tickets. And you'll notice in territories, there were times when a wrestler would come in. Now, I don't know if we mentioned Pedro Morales last week. No, we and, didn't. Okay. I love Pedro Morales. I always did. Great intercontinental I, champion in the I Northeast. He, I thought he was a great, I think he he had the look of a champion. Uh, he, he represented a, a good portion of the United States with the, the Puerto Ricans and he was popular over in the, in the, in the East coast, he was over. I mean, he didn't draw as well as Bruno did, but he was over and he did draw money. Now, when he came to the AWA in 1977, somebody said to me just a month or so back, they said, well, when Pedro was here, you know, Vern didn't use him right, and Vern didn't put him in any, you know, didn't give him a push. I said, okay, hold the phone. Hang on a second. And I looked up what Pedro did here. And remember, I sat through all of Pedro's matches when he was here. He was here for about a year, a little over a year. He was brought in. He was put into a, a high-profile program with uh, Don Jardine, who was the super destroyer under a mask at the time. And the he was given matches. 
Super Destroyer. He, he was given high-profile matches with King Kong Angelo Mosca, who was huge at the time. He was uh, given title matches with Nick Bockwinkle. He was in tag team bouts with Jim Brunzel and other wrestlers and the Crusher. He had uh, other – he wrestled Ray Stevens when he was here. I don't have all of his results down in front of me right now. But he was given a push. But I'm telling you, and this is where I this is where I learned about not every wrestler can come from another territory and have the same impact in another territory. It's demographics. People in the arenas, when Pedro was in these matches that I just mentioned, and even against Nick Bockwinkle, they were just sitting there watching the match. He's he's wrestling the world champion, Nick Bockwinkle, and the people they weren't cheering. They weren't getting into the match. I remember Nick working hard to make Pedro, you know, look good. I'm sure he was telling him, you know, do this or do that. Or, But my point being that as good as Pedro was, and I do believe he was a great draw and a great worker, and he was. Down in Florida, out on the West Coast, he was, he was box office. But right here, didn't work. And that's... That's the case with a lot of wrestlers. Some of them just can't transplant and get the same fan reaction. And if he doesn't draw money, so Pedro stay here, whether it was by his own accord or whether Vern and him separated company, I don't know. But Pedro was here only about, I, I want to say without looking, about a year, maybe a year and a half, which is a little bit shorter than most guys that come through. And, and, we, he was touted here as the former W, and in that time it was still WWF champion. He was touted as the former WWF champion. Fans didn't yeah. care. So what is his worth? His worth was less to Vern than it was to Vince. And in those days that would have still been Vince Sr. in mm -hmm. 77. So his worth was, you know, how does he show his worth? By what he can draw at the gate, he didn't draw as well here. And I just want to bring up two two points here. But demographics is key, especially in the time periods we're talking about. But when I said about, and I'm sorry I cut you off about Don Jardine, most people also know him as the spoiler. But, right. yeah, down in the south and stuff. And Undertaker talks about stealing some moves from him, and that's a whole other story. But I didn't mean to cut you off there. But just so people know what I was referencing. So, you know, actually, those were the two points that I wanted to cover there. But we could spin off with this because I heard you talk about this in other conversations and such. Kind of what we're talking with the demographics and things. And not this ain't just the AWA or the NWA or whoever we're talking about. But the culture that we live in here in 2023, and I'm not going to make this political, but the PC culture affecting wrestling. And in some cases, rightfully so, that we got to grow and evolve as people and such. Not saying that, but the PC culture at times affecting 
what you would do and your storytelling in the business. Because let's say from when I was a little kid, perfect example would be Sergeant Slaughter turning heel uh, during the Iraq war and the first Iraq war and then Hogan, the hero. And obviously you had Iron Sheik and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. You also had Baron Ron Rasky, the Von, uh, Fritz Von Erich, and just these different people that were heels based on their, you know, ethnicity and the characters and stuff they portrayed. How do you think the difference in culture has affected the business? Mind you, I know you don't watch the current product. But well, I, I don't watch it, Jonathan, but I do, as I said last week, I I do tune in once in a great moon. And of course, I talk with people all the time that do watch it. So I, I know enough just to have a conversation, but I know nothing about the history or anything that it's you know, following. Let me answer your question about the PC thing. Now, you mentioned earlier a little bit ago that you're uh, you're 39 years old. Yes, sir. So, um, I I'm not afraid to say I said it last week. I'm 72. So I've been on the planet a few more years than you. And and you know the one thing that I've learned, um, and I even alluded to this last week when I said, you know, when when we're younger. When I was 39, when I was 29, when I was 19, if I heard somebody who's 65, 70, 80 years old, and they're telling the stories, you know, y'all back in my day, you know, and uh, we had to walk, you know, six miles to school barefoot in the snow. You know, I mean, you listen to all this or it sure is a different time now the way it used to be. You know, we didn't have this problem. So I think it's a natural progression as we get older. We do gain more experience, obviously. We gain more knowledge. And with that knowledge, hopefully comes the ability to understand the world a little bit more. You know, kid, uh, little kids don't understand sometimes. You know, when you're a teenager, oh, my God, we all tease about when you're 15 years old, you're the smartest in the world. You know, you're smarter than your parents. You're smarter than your teachers, you know. The bottom line is, is that you have this problem because these people think they know it all. Well, a lot of times it's not that they know it all. It's that they've lived longer. They've seen more. They've experienced more. They And, and that's where uh, when, when I look at the PC thing, because that's where you were touching on. Um, I lived in the era when I started watching wrestling in 1959 and I was eight years old, kids. Those of you watching, listening, we were still we were still a decade, only a decade removed from World War II. Now, I again, as an eight-year-old kid, I didn't understand this at that time, but looking back now and and studying history, we, the World War II ended in 1946 or 45, the end of 45. Yes, we were at war with we were at war with Japan and Germany. They were enemies. They did evil things. They were evil people. I'm talking now back then, okay? They they were out to hurt us. They were out to take us out. They were out to, to kill us. They they had no respect for their own culture. The, the war, the world war, it was awful. We had our allies that came to our aid, you know, the U.S., which, by the way, Russia was an ally at that point. 
which is kind of weird when you look at today's situation. But and during World War One and all that. But don't make me pull out the history degree. But go ahead. Right. So in uh, after the war is over, promoters, they were only doing what made perfect sense. If you you would just come. My dad was a, a World War Two vet. He was over overseas. A lot of vet, a lot of people, their dads didn't come home. And when they did come home, they they had this. I think it was an anger. I think it was a bitterness. I think it was a, a probably even a hatred of of this country or in these countries that were trying to hurt us. So, promoters, they were very smart. If we put a Japanese wrestler in the ring against Vern Gagne. And I, I've described Vern a few times as mom's apple pie, good guy. You know, he was pure. He was decent. He was kind. He was considerate. He was perceived as the the do the do good all the time guy. Military this, vet. Yeah. But you put this evil Japanese guy in there against him. Well, and then, of course, the Japanese villains still played off the sentiments of the fans. I'm going to destroy America. You know, they'd come on their interviews and talk about taking America down. And it was box office. It sold tickets. Now, to answer the PC thing, was it correct then to do it? No. But I'm going to ask you a question. And I think about this at age 72. We, we are very PC sensitive today, and rightly so. I'm not saying it's bad that we've made the moves that we have and, and moved forward like we have. But I look at being 72 years old and I say, is our country, is America closer together or are we more divided than we've ever been? Be and, and now you you got PC everywhere, PC everywhere. You can't go through a single day without PC being hit in the face. Are we better off? I don't think we are. My my ringside seat says right now at my age, and you're 39, so you don't you had, don't have the uh, the eye that I had the years before you weren't here and the experiences and the the political situations and the news, etc. I think we're worse off right now than we've ever been. It scares me. Yeah, but you know what? We can no longer do. A dirty, we, you know, back in the day, they were dirty jabs. I just showed my wife a program the other day. I said, look at the headline on this program. And it was from 1955, dirty jabs, right on the top of the program. Well, we can't, and that's not nice. That, that isn't nice. We we need to get along with our, with our, our, everybody. We need to get along with our neighbors. We need to get along with our coworkers. We need to get along with other, you know, other nationalities. That's the only way we can ever have peace. But I don't think we are closer today than we were 50 years ago when I got out of high school. I don't think we are. I see the world much, much angrier. I see the, uh, the world much more divided. And I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I see that the family structure is broken beyond repair. There are no more families. Uh, the traditional family that, and I'm not talking about the, the fictitious leave it to beaver family you know where everything was 
because that was never a total reality. It was a story on TV. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about a mom and a dad and kids and sitting down to supper and doing things together and being involved in their lives and, and you know, being there for each other. We don't have that anymore. I see, I see so many families that are just so upside down, more than I've ever seen in my life. It scares the hell out of me. Well, I don't want to do a complete left turn, but to answer your question. I want you to. But to answer your question, I should say, yeah. is even from, because I got a background in history. So mm-hmm. I'm very well-schooled from American Revolution to the mm-hmm. turbulent 60s to Vietnam, Civil War, all, all the way up through now. I would say even since I was in school, it's changed so much. 20 years. But for it, you. Yes. Also, yeah, it's 21 years. It's scary. Also, yeah, yeah from high school, I'm talking, folks. Yeah. No, but also, yeah, you said a key word in, when you were speaking there that I picked up on. And... For the most part, I get why, as a society, we make some of the moves we make from a PC side. I get it. You know, we like to, I like to think we, we grow and learn. However, you know, we are separated and argue politics, all that other stuff. We're not going to go there. But the key word that you mentioned was sensitivity. And can, can we reunite? I like to think so, but. Well, we have to fall. have hope. We have yes. to have faith. Yeah. But I will say this, and I like to quote Bill Clinton's autobiography from when he was in office. And I'm not going to give the, well, I can give a little, you know, grassroots of what he was talking about. But he always said, that he was a pretty smart guy, Bill Clinton. But the thing that he had to realize early on, especially in his presidency, was know what I don't know. And he was discussing, and that concept can work on many different areas, but he was talking about one of the first major things that was an issue when he took the job as president was the economy it's the economy stupid but he goes i'm not the biggest and best math guy but i wasn't afraid to reach across the aisle to guys like alan greenspan and people who knew what he didn't know and have a conversation i'm thinking about this for this a b and c to fix this and this goes for anywhere in life folks whether it's wrestling the economy, politics, whatever. He wasn't afraid to say what I didn't know and talk to people he who knew more than he did on certain topics. And I think if we all took that mentality of know what we don't know and willing to have a civil conversation with folks, I think we would be a lot well, better off. I think uh, whether it be wrestling or baseball or movies, Whatever it is, whatever it is, 
I think that we, the idealistic way would be that all of us as human beings, regardless of our race, our religious beliefs, our, or lack thereof with some people, uh, our, our uh, color of our skin, I think it would be just utopia if all of us could just sit down and always not see any of those things and just get along. Um, I had a I had a friend. I want to bring up a friend here, and he'll he'll send me a text on it after I mention this name. Um, and he's a good friend. I love him to death. Dale Spear. Dale's been in the radio business. He's a wrestling fan. He's been in the radio business probably his whole career. He's a great guy. Him and I have had some discussions about how I feel. You know, I feel that what Vince McMahon did to wrestling, he ruined wrestling. But we're talking about the when he made the announcement the, and taxes when, and all that stuff, right? Well, when he when he when he opened up the door and said it's no longer uh, uh, yeah, re, it's not real, it's fake, it's predetermined, it's entertainment. Um, you know, a lot of people I, I still don't like that, but it didn't hurt the business any because they're still drawing millions of fans a year, so he he didn't hurt it. But what I'm talking about is is uh, we it's even hard for me to put it into words i lived in an era when before the 1960s there were black wrestlers that couldn't wrestle in certain territories of the wrestling business or they wouldn't be booked in certain territories of the wrestling business and if you look at some of the, the wrestling cards in the South, you could not have a black wrestler wrestle a white wrestler. You had to have two blacks. They were on the card. They had to wrestle each other. I could show you programs that, that bear this out. They would never, you know, um, and that was wrong. That was totally, it, it just, we, at every stage of our lives, we have put, uh, we have put the irritate the fan or, or make the fan upset. Now, what I mentioned about my friend, Dale Spear, Dale and I have had some spirited discussions because I've made the comment to him a few times. I said, you know, being 72, I've seen the news media change through the decades, how the news is presented, mm -hmm. how it is absorbed, digested. And I told him, I, and I told him, I said, you know, I think the news today is only out there to infuriate people, to anger people, to keep people disenchanted, to keep them disgruntled, to keep them angry. And if you look at our country, and this, this is a little bit political, but it's, it's the way the world operates. If we can keep people angry, we seem to be happier. And I grew up in an era where we didn't have, oh, my God. And I even question this. Why do we have to have 24 hours a day of news? But your television, your internet, your all your, you know, I, I don't subscribe to any of the Instagrams and the Twitters, X's or anything. I don't do that. But it's all, it's all opinion news shoved in your face. And it's the reason we're all messed up. 
you know, people talk about fake news. Well, there is no real news anymore because we can't find it. There, there's so many different versions of every single story. We don't, we, there's no way for us to find the truth. And nobody is willing to report the truth. They'll tell us something to get us angry and listen to their station. They'll tell us something to tune in. But it's all sensationalism. And I'm not saying it hasn't always been that way because bad news sells better than good news. Uh, it's, I think that's human nature, too. George, you're, and as someone who had a dual degree with communications and every, and the history, you are, and I'm not saying this to kiss your ass, you are absolutely right as far as the presentation and everything else. But you brought up the race thing, and this isn't in my notes. I'm not looking at them right now. But as soon as you thought about that, and good or bad, Thunderbolt Patterson was a guy and gentleman. I, he's still with us, correct? If I remember. I believe he is, yes. But Thunderbolt Patterson, who Dusty Rhodes and others just love Thunderbolt. But Thunderbolt was always a vocal person about a lot of these topics. But have you had any interaction with Thunderbolt and seen him be vocal about a lot of these different topics that you've brought up? No, no. I he he actually worked. Um, he worked in the AWA when he was pretty young. He was, he was wrestling as Claude Patterson, his real name back in 1964, 65, he was here. He was wrestling in Amarillo, and then he picked up on this Thunderbolt character. I only know over, uh, over the years, I know there's been some, there's been times when he's been very vocal about different things. And you know, the thing is, Jonathan, I think we all as people have to be vocal. We have to stand up when we see wrongs. We have to stand up when things need change. We have to stand up when people aren't doing anything. And I know we're not even talking wrestling now, but it does apply to wrestling in so many ways. Because when we look at how wrestling shaped us as far as sometimes our viewpoints on different races, you know, when, when, I, was, when I was young, I would have been, uh, you know, when I was 10 years old, I would have been of the belief that a black wrestler was not good. because we had this, this, it was like a, a thing that a black person isn't good. And that's the bad. The presentation, because, the news and everything. Right, right. But, but that's bad because I want to believe in my heart that all people are generally good. I don't, and again, it doesn't matter your skin, your color, whatever you're, whatever you are, there are bad people among all those different groups. Mm -hmm. And the news only brings out the bad news. And then that affects people. Um, I don't know. You know, this is a, a way off the rails here, but we're fine. But back in 2020, we were going through COVID as a, mm -hmm. as a country, as a world, but as a country, we were going through COVID, and I wouldn't be the first one to tell you that the whole COVID thing became a political 
yep. uh, arena because we had all the, I'll just say supposed experts. We had all the experts, all of the people that supposedly had the knowledge that they could give us the best they knew and the best way to cure and the best this. And then you had all the naysayers that saying they're all a bunch of hogwash. They don't know anything. They're telling us this. And, you know, um, they're, they're not telling you the truth. And that was a horrible year. Yet hundreds of thousands of people were dying when we had no vaccinations. Then when we got a vaccination, no, it was too quick. They, 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 I'm not going to take the vaccination because it's, it's going to kill you. And, you know, and we, we're just a country where we just have no trust. We have no trust. We don't trust the doctors. And I, and I always say, if you don't trust your doctor, well, I don't know if you're just stupid or what. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you don't trust your doctor. You can get a different doctor. But we, if we don't trust our medical field, then we're lost as a world. Because the medical field is the one that's, I, I believe, uh, the ones that have kept us alive, kept us trying to be healthy. And then I'm going to go. We were, go ahead. Sorry. Then we were talking about 2020. So here in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, in uh, May of 2020, we had the George Floyd murder. Mm -hmm. That's I only live 20 miles from Minneapolis. And I sat for several weeks, several days following this horrific situation that took place. Um, I sat in horror as I watched Minneapolis being torched, destroyed, rioting, buildings being wrecked, cars being turned over, uh, people fighting and, and hurting each other. It was a very, very ugly scene. The national news, I know they played it up too, but it was very close to home. And there's so many stories. And, and that and, and when we get done with this comment, then maybe let's just go back to the wrestling thing. But yeah, the the whole the whole situation it, that took place in 2020 with that, um, it's had another bad effect on our country because. Our race relations are negative again. We've got so much distrust. We've got so much pointing the finger. Uh, the, the it's the police, the good guys, the police against the bad guys, whoever they might be, and it's it's an ugly place out there, and 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 we don't feel safe. And I'm going to tell you right now. I grew up watching the news when I was from about the time I was. 19 again eight years old 59 60 i started watching the the network news and then we just had a half hour news program in those days but i started watching the news i always like to watch the news, and i'd read the newspaper and i'm telling you right now we didn't have shootings killings riots every single day every single day we didn't have it mm -hmm. was it you that mentioned columbine yes it was me we yeah. talked about this last week a little okay. bit and 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 when you go back to that was what 80 80 what was it 88 89 87 Columbine there? would have been like 98 98 Oh it was that late. Yeah yeah you're right yeah. you're right. Okay. It seems like then for the last 25 years 22 23 25 years every single day there are murders 
there are school shootings, there are office shootings, there are business shootings. We never had that. Something's wrong in the world. Now, I'm not saying you ban guns. I'm, I don't care. I don't care to get into any debates about guns or anything being, you know, the right to bear arms. We're, we're not arguing about that. We're arguing that the world is broken and something's got to be done. And I don't know that there's anybody out there to fix it. And I'll tell you the weirdest thing I heard this morning on the radio. I don't have to say, I don't have to tell anybody about. I've always been very attuned to presidential elections since the Kennedy Nixon, uh, when I was 10 years old, I was, My background. I, was I was in awe with. Um, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I can say that with my hand on a Bible. I'm neither. I have voted both ways through the years for presidents. I tried to vote for the guy at the time that I feel is going to be as good as he can be. That's that's my way. I just say vote. But all of the political unrest that we've had in the last couple elections, I heard something this morning that just I just kind of I was laying in bed and I heard it on the five the five a.m. Uh, national CBS News. We know that, and again, it doesn't matter what side you stand on. It doesn't matter what your political candidate, who you who you support. But we know there's all kinds of issues with Trump. He's got all kinds of federal. There's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot of baggage, whether whether it's right or wrong, proven right or wrong or whatever. And they're you know when he was, they tried to impeach him, impeach him, and they're doing all this. Well, this morning I heard now that the GOP wants to impeach Biden. It was on the news this morning. They want to start impeachment proceedings because of his alleged uh, dealings that he might have had with his son. So here's where I come from with that story. I just sit back and I say, you know, how as a country can we expect to come together when on a daily basis, the right side is arguing with the left side. The left side is arguing with the right side. They're all trying to point a finger at who's bad, who's done something wrong, who's not doing this, who's not doing that. We're no longer, none of them are doing their job anymore. Mm -hmm. Nobody's governing. Yeah. And now, I, go back I don't to the know restaurant. that I have the answer. I'm just saying that's my observation. Yeah, you're. You're right spot on there. And going to go back to the wrestling, but I want to bring this up because uh, it's only fair. And I totally agree with you as far as people not listening to the experts. But I go back to because of what you were saying there about the serious stuff and all with everything that I know what I don't know. But it's the thing I, the argument I throw out there. If in your family to room there, if you get a leak in your roof, you're not going to call a mechanic. You're going to call a roofer, correct? Or a plumber. But, yeah. but you're going to, but you're going to call the people that I'm know what call they're the doing. People that, yep. Yeah. I'm going to call the people that I know, the people that allegedly are, know a lot more than I in whatever the field is. If your car yep. breaks down, you're not going to call a politician. No, nope. You're going to call nope. a mechanic. I'm going to get the mechanic, get the garage, fix it for me. Exactly. 
All right, wrestling, you know, because we can spend another two hours talking about the real world shit. Well, and there is but, no right or wrong. It's just yeah, conversation. No, we can, but we can have that conversation for three hours easily. And I was curious to know, because you mentioned it last week during part one here. We were talking, you were talking about Stan Hansen and obviously told that story that people know that Vern pulled him into the shower where people does do business back in the day. I don't know if they still do it that way. But back in the day, folks, in a locker room, a promoter or the boys would go in the locker room, discuss business, mm-hmm. finishes, whatever the case is. But obviously, I was thinking about that, and I didn't have a chance to bring this up. Somebody that Stan came up in the business with, and obviously the story's been told, but the whole Bruiser Brody thing. Did you hear a lot? in the business of where things would go south so bad when talking business that obviously Brody's the big example, you know, the stabbing and all that fun stuff. Well, not fun stuff, but that whole story, I should say. Sorry, folks. But have you heard of business going south so bad in other stories? As far as wrestlers go, yeah. When talking business, okay. We need what we need to accomplish with whether the night or for the story or whatever the case is. Well, I think you you mentioned two guys who I personally liked a lot as workers, Brody and Hanson. I thought both were excellent. They could draw money. That's the name of the game, as we've already discussed. Very independent guys, too. But but that's what I was leading to. Um, and I'm not and I'm not I'm not saying they were wrong. I'm saying that they they both marched to the beat of a different drummer. They were doing something and they weren't the first ones to do this, but they were two of the primary ones at the time in that that time frame. Um they would go into a promotion. They would agree to work for whatever dollars. And then if they didn't, if they didn't like something on the card or they didn't, they felt the house was bigger or, or whatever, they would want more money at the last second. And then they threatened not to go on. They'd hold the promoter up for more money. I mean, these were stories that I'm going to say, I don't know hundred percent that they're true, Jonathan. But they've been told enough times where there's got to be some validity. And, you know, the old thing about stories is both two people tell a story. Somewhere in the middle is the truth. Three sides so, to the story. Your side, <laughs> more side, the truth. Right. Now, in the case of Hanson, um, I know we talked last week. And this is this story is it's it's an intriguing story. And it's one that people like to talk about and people like to get different perspectives on it. Um, it's an, it's just, it's something in wrestling history that probably will never go away. We talked about how Vern put the title on Hanson, the AWA title. And, uh, you know, five years, 10 years earlier, Vern would have never done that. Hanson, I mean, as good a worker as he was, Vern would not have put the title on Stan Hanson. It was a business but, decision. But, it, but it, at the time he did it, 
the business had changed in a way that Vern was now uh, fighting a different battle than he had he had fought before. And to be honest, uh, still in 1985, he was holding his own, but he had a revolving door of wrestlers where it was hard for him to work a program through between two guys or two tag teams. Uh, he'd have he'd have uh, the angles all set up, and then at the last minute, so-and-so's gone. You know, Vince had taken him or paid him not to show up. There's a lot of dirty stuff going on behind the scenes. So with, you know, Stan Hansen, um, and, and I told you, I don't know Stan, but I have talked to Stan. I had a chance to sit with him a few years ago. Uh, heck, it's about eight years ago now. But uh, at Waterloo, the Hall of Fame, I had a chance to sit with him at our banquet table, and I talked with him for a while. Very nice guy. Very calm, very relaxed, seemingly at peace with the world. Um, so I, I, I have nothing but nice things to say about him. But I think his actions, as he took the approach in wrestling, he saw it as taking care of Stan Hansen. But what he neglected to keep in mind is that he worked for people. He wasn't the boss. He was an employee. And all of us have, you know, I mean, we know people that own companies. They're the boss. They can do whatever they want. But I worked for my career. I worked in a bank and a couple of banks. But I, I worked in banking. And I had to do what they asked me to do. My positions in the bank, the, the different things. Now, if I didn't agree, and I have that right, I can either question it, hope we can work it out, or I can leave. And that's what it is. But I can't go in as the employee and tell the boss, hey, screw you, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I don't care about you and this is the way it's going to be because, because, because. Well, as an employee, I don't have that power. A lot of people today don't realize that. They they want to uh, they want to go in and they want everything to be their way and you know, and, and so Stan Hansen, and I'm not saying Vern did this part right. He decided the day of the match with Nick Bockwinkle in Denver in 1986 or whatever, 85, whatever it was. Uh, I'll tell you right now where it was. Denver, oh, right? Yeah, it was in Denver. Um uh, Yeah, he beat Martel. And then, uh, so on 629 in Denver of uh, uh, 1986. So he had the title for, I don't know, won it from Martel in June. What the heck did he do here? He won it in December of, of 85. So he had it about uh, six, seven months. And during that time period, it wasn't working out because Vern... Because of the arrangement that bro that uh, Stan had in Japan with Shohei Baba, Giant Baba, uh, Baba was paying him to come over there, and Baba was paying him well. He made his income was better in Japan, so yeah. I don't, you know, Stan he had his logic. You know, I'm making more money over there. 
But he Vern wasn't getting the dates he wanted. And finally, on this particular night, Vern decided we're just going to take the title off of Hanson, put it on <laughs> Nick. Nick was going to go over that night in Denver. And Nick was made aware of it. So that shower thing we talked about, they called Stan in there. Stan was leaving. He was going to be gone three weeks to go to Japan. And again, Vern's got, you know, you can't have dates again. His belt, his champion, his employee is not here to work. Okay. So called him in, said, I'm going to take, I want you to drop the belt tonight. And that's when the ruckus happened. Stan said, that ain't going to happen. He basically told him to F off and he grabbed the title belt and stormed out of the building. Went to Japan. He wrestled over there as the AWA champion. Uh, there actually are a couple of uh, Japanese magazines out there that show him in the ring, wearing the belt, defending the title in Japan. And he wasn't champion at the time, but who knew that at the time? You know, nobody he didn't had the internet and such. Right. So the bottom line is, is that uh, all I'm saying is this. When Stan worked for Vern, I mean, when I say worked, when he was on a card that Vern promoted, AWA, Stan was Vern's employee. When he went to Japan and he wrestled for Baba, he was Baba's employee. And there's the only thing is, is that Stan didn't know the difference. He wanted, he wanted to uh, play the game and wrestle whatever he wanted to. And he was telling his boss that gave him the title, I'll do it when I want to, not when you want me to. And the employee can't do that. So in this matter, I have always taken the side that Vern, um, I don't think he expected Stan to walk. I don't think that was ever a thought. This was a, you know, the, the thing at the top of the wrestling programs that always said program subject to change. Mm -hmm. Well, on this particular night, it was program subject to change right before the main event because all of a sudden he didn't have a main event. Now, the, the armchair quarterbacks out there have said, well, that night that, you know, Nick should have then had to wrestle somebody else on the card in an elimination match or something and the winner would be champion, whatever. But that was hindsight. Uh, Vern did the only thing that he could think of impromptu. And this was, and, and as a business owner, as an owner of a company, many times they have to make decisions that at the moment are the best decision they can come up with. In hindsight, they may disagree with it, but we know what they say about hindsight. It's always 2020. So Vern said by default, he, he's in the ring with the, with the uh, Denver fans surrounding him. He says, fans, Stan Hansen refused to come to the ring and defend the title to Nick. He didn't tell him about the background thing where I told him. was. I mean, obviously he didn't tell him that, but he refused to defend the title and he has left the building. And by default, Nick Bockwinkle has declared the new AWA champion. He had Stan to make a decision based on what? You had to, you know, sometimes circumstances, you do things that after you'd have a chance to think about them, you may not have done it exactly that way, but that's, we've all done that in our life. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, when you're faced with an impromptu decision or a decision right now, sometimes if you'd have had time to think about it, you wouldn't have done it. You know, if Vern would have thought, gee, you know, and I'm going to tell Stan to lose. And what if he tells me he's not going to lose? What am I going to do? 
Well, he may have been prepared then to come up with something different, but he didn't have time to make that preparation. So he was an independent contractor. And that was the deal with Brody, too. They, they were both so good, and they were such a good draw that a lot of times promoters were willing to deal with the anxiety and the frustration and the, uh, that they had to deal with with them because when they worked, they did good jobs, but uh, they were tough to deal with. Brody in St. Paul, he was scheduled to wrestle Jerry Blackwell. And uh, he, he actually was in the match with Jerry Blackwell, in a match with Jerry Blackwell. And Brody got ticked during the match. Now, I don't know what about, I don't know why, but he left. He got out of the ring and left. That wasn't the finish. He walked out of the ring. Now, you can't have your employees just doing that. No. No matter what your company is. Your question? No, you did. So, obviously, and you mentioned it there and whatnot as far as the walkouts and stuff and you gotta you gotta call this you gotta call this show crazy trade uh, wrestling and, and political views because yeah. we've been we've been on and off the track here oh and, absolutely and folks, and folks i'm not right on i'm not saying i'm the know-all cure-all of any of this i just offer some some thoughts so hey we're just having a conversation here folks yeah so obviously uh a lot of the major talents from AWA made the jump to New York. You obviously had guys like Mean Gene and Bobby, which Bobby Heenan finished his dates, Adrian Adonis and Brunzel and Dave Schultz, Ventura, obviously the big one, Hogan and all. Well, back let me, to New let York. Me, Go ahead. Let me, let me point this out to you. Mad Dog also, um, uh, agreed to finish his dates. Yeah. I don't know if I've told you that story, but I did mention it, if not last, last week. week. Did I? That he had yeah. went to Vern the night he was going to wrestle Brody at the Civic Center. He, he told Vern that he had accepted an offer from McMahon. He said, you know, I'm, I'm near the end of my career. Mad Dog was like 56 or 57 at the time. He, and he was, he was near the end. And he says, I got some good paydays left. I'm going to take them. And he told Vern, I'll go out and, you know, do the match with Brody. And Vern actually stopped him. He said, no, don't go out. I think Vern, in my opinion, that was a sacrifice for Vern. Because I, I, I will tell you, I was in the audience. Brody is supposed to wrestle Mad Dog. That's a main event, kids. Yes. Mad Dog yes. versus Brody. You know, that's going to be a back and forth killer match and what is very we physical get? and what did we get we had his substitute was and nothing against this guy because he's a great guy and he's a good worker but we got steve olsonowski against brody hello you know <laughs> but mad dog Vern just told him don't go out now Vern could have said brody kick his fanny from one end of the ring to the next or just been so ticked with him that, you know, because Vern would have had a right to be mad. He had taken care of Mad Dog for, at that point in time, for over 20 years of, of having him on his cards and putting him over as the AWA champ and the tag team champ and in main events. I mean, he, 
he took care of Mad Dog. So he had every right to be ticked if he'd have wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, even the Hulk Hogan thing, you know, when Hogan sent the telegram that he wasn't coming back to Minneapolis. And when I say, again, when I say Minneapolis, I'm talking AWA. Minneapolis was the office, okay? They thought that was a rib, right? Well, that's the story. I mean, I've heard it. I've heard it enough times that uh, there has to be partial truth to it. But here's the deal: when when he told Vern he wasn't coming back, Greg said, "We told Hulk, Hulk, we've got six weeks of television out there advertising you all over the AWA for the next six weeks. Finish your dates." You know, come in and finish your dates, and then if you're going to go, okay. Hogan said, no, Vince is paying me more to stay away. Now, it, yeah, does that one make... of those, if I, can I cut you off here? Yeah, uh, yeah, we'd wanted yeah. that with Hogan, that, that whole story. I've heard that story, but I've heard Greg tell a story that they were planning stuff with Andre during that time period. Is that they true? They were. There were. If you go to YouTube, there is, and I believe it's from 1983. There was a there was a series of matches going around the AWA where Adrian, Jesse, and sometimes Bobby Heenan, and also Duncan and Patera and Bobby Heenan were going against Hogan and Andre in a handicap type situation. You know, two against three. Of course, Hogan, you know, Andre, the push, the idea is, is they're so big, he doesn't need another partner, right? I mean, that's what they're mm -hmm. selling us. So there were matches that were going around. Well, during these matches, Jonathan, Hogan and, and uh, Andre had gotten into some, they had some miscues in the ring. They had a couple times where, you know, they missed some, they hit one another instead of hitting the opponent. And there were some miscues. And there's an interview with Mean Gene, and I believe I've seen it. It's on YouTube. I don't know the exact dates or what it's called, but they were attempting to put a Hogan versus Andre match. And it never happened because right after that, right then was when Hogan had went to Japan. So this would have been something they would have been working to when he come back home. He went to Japan. He was gone. And then when he came back, um, that's when he said he wasn't coming back. So, yes, Vern had the idea. Was going to eventually be an Andre Hogan. And it, it, it could have likely been two good guys that just had a difference with one another because we had matches like that. It wasn't that they hated each other back in that era. You know, I don't know if they would have turned Andre heel like Vince originally or eventually did where he had to turn heel. But Yes, that was Vern Gagne's idea. And, but when Vince took Hogan, part of the deal was Hogan told Vince, I will come with you, but only if David Schultz comes with me. Now, behind the scenes, Hogan and Schultz were buddies, but they were involved in a heated program for about a year. I mean, the redneck David Schultz against Hogan and their matches, I swear to you, I loved their matches. 
They had Saido involved with Schultz. They were banging Hulk around. Uh, but Vince got Schultz at the same time. Now, what the AWA did was when they announced that uh, Hogan wasn't going to appear, they never said that he had left, but he had. And they substituted him on some cards, which they had nothing else, nothing else they could do. But in the case of Schultz, they did announce that David Schultz had been suspended. Mean Gene said that on TV. And then it was so weird. It was such a weird thing because all of a sudden Vince was in our TV market and he was actually on TV on Saturday night at 6.30, which a few years earlier, that was Vern's time slot. So he had taken over Vern's old time slot. Vern still had his original one that he was doing on Sunday mornings at that time, where he was doing well with. But um, all of a sudden, we've got the WWF, which they were at the time, and they're on Channel 11. Our wrestling is on Channel 9. The fans were confused because all of a sudden, here's Hulk Hogan out on Channel 11 telling everybody that he's got the real world title because he beat Iron Sheik. And he called it the real world title. So he's putting AWA down there in AWA land. The real world title in the Big Apple, Madison Square Garden. I got the real one. And then all of a sudden, we get our show and Gene Okerlund is on the Channel 11 show. He he got went over to Vince as well. We were watching our guys flipping back and forth. The average fan at the time didn't understand what was going on. We were just enjoying some good wrestling. We had a card at the Metropolitan Sports Center where our old Minnesota North Star hockey team used to play. They then moved down to Dallas to become the Dallas Stars, which they are today. Um, and then we had uh, uh, the cards in the St. Paul Civic Center that Vern was still putting on. We, were, we, had a, we had a field day. We had great cards. But let me tell you, through the rest of 1984 and pretty much through 85, Vern was still outdrawing McMahon when he came to the Twin Cities. I don't know about the rest of the AWA cities, but in the Twin Cities, he was still outdrawing him. And they Vince would put a card on one night, Vern would have his the next night, or vice versa. And Vern would outdraw him. And Vern was using newer talent Guys like the Road Warriors, the Mass Superstar, Stomper. I mean, these were newer to the fans. Fabulous mm -hmm. ones, uh, the Rockers, all these people that were coming Vader. in. Vader. Well, Vader was a Vern product, too. A trained Yeah. Him. Vern trained him. Or actually, it was uh, Brad Rangans who trained yes. uh, uh, Vader. But he Leon trained White. several guys like... Uh, who was the other guy? We talked about it last week. He's... People know him. Uh, he trained the Road Warriors, Rude, all those guys. Well, the, the oh Eddie Sharkey. Yes, thank you. Eddie Sharkey. Eddie Sharkey trained the Warriors. Uh, Barry Darso, who was Crusher Khrushchev. He was also the Smash of Demolition. Yep. Blacktop Bully. He had a he had an identity like that for a while. Um, so, but the 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 whole political scene in wrestling, it got ugly so fast. And then 
during the course of 85 and into 86, you saw Vince taking from all the territories. He was taking Junkyard Dog from Bill Watts, which was technically the dog to Watts was what Hogan was to Vern. The, the Junkyard Dog was his top guy. And I don't know if you recall this or not, but Watts had Junkyard Dog in a, a pretty decent program against uh, Big Bad Leroy Brown at the time. And uh, I always thought that was kind of clever because that was the takeoff on the Jim Croce song. If you ever, if you know what I'm talking about, I they're talking, exactly about know mean, talking about meaner than a junkyard dog and big bad Leroy Brown. They were two characters in his song. But anyway, then he took the Freebirds. Vince did. Then he had Randy Savage. Then he grabbed Paul Orndorff. Then he had Ted DiBiase. He was raiding Piper. all these territories, huh? Piper. Oh yeah, Piper from. <laughs> from the Pacific Northwest. And, uh, you know, Vince just started bringing guys in right and left. And the bottom line was, is in many times he was paying them more not to appear where they were than what they were getting where they would have appeared. Does that make sense? Yeah. See a brother to get that booty act <laughs> Lay it down and smack them, yak them. Cold got to be. You know? <laughs> no, it does. Exactly. I mean, it makes sense, I guess, if you want more money, you know. Yeah. But, you, you had guys, and I think the AWA lasted a little longer because look, you mentioned some of them already. You had folks like a young Scott Hall. You had the Midnight Rockers. You had Vader. Nasty Boys came in. Zabisco came in, was a champ for a little while. Uh, mm -hmm. You had Medusa Michelli, who flat out badass. You know, you yeah. had all these... Yeah, you had this next gen. Kurt Henning was champ for a little while before he made the jump. And you had things like the super class shows and such. So am I on the wrong track here? Why the AWA lasted longer? Well, I think there were a couple of other territories that actually did last a little bit longer. Memphis was around longer, I believe. Than well, they ended up having to deal with Vince, but that's... But, yeah. but they were dealing with Vince. Um, the bottom line was when you go back and you look at the, the damage that was done, the AWA was the one that was, was trashed the most, the hardest. I mean, it certainly it hurt, uh, Bill Watts and Bill was dealing with different things down in the mid South too, you know, as far as a promoter goes, but you know, he lost Duggan, Hacksaw Duggan. He lost DiBiase. We mentioned that. He lost the Freebirds. He lost the Junkyard Dog. Um, you know, and then Vince did everything he could to bring in people. And then, you know, look at the sidelines when you had the Briscoes. Uh, Jack and Jerry sold their stock to, to uh, Vince. And you had then Vince brought in the Funks because he had robbed the he had robbed the Amarillo territory enough because he had brought in Blackjack Mulligan and different people. I mean, it was, it was for about for about five or six years. You you literally needed a scorecard to figure out who's who, who's where, and why. And if you and you had to write it in pencil because it changed daily. I mean, look what he did with uh, Dusty Rhodes. Brought him <laughs> in as the polka dot man or whatever the hell he was, you know, and then. And then Harley Reese. He still got that shit over, though. He did. Well, I mean, 
he got over with it, but it was it was still to embarrass him at the time. Yeah. And then Harley Race. Harley is he owns the he he's a, a third owner of the Central States territory with Bob Geigel and and uh, Pat O'Connor, and he he literally finally he went because his area was was robbed of people, and he finally went to uh, Geigel and O'Connor and he said, "I didn't think I'd do it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Vince. He's offering to pay me well, and I see the end here." So Harley went and they made him the king. But you remember when they did that, they never acknowledged any past. This was Harley Race. This wasn't eight-time NWA world champion Harley Race. This was just Harley Race, and they made him a king. Um, Vince played some dirty cards. That's all I can tell you. Now, and in the end, I sit back. And in the end, I sit back now and I say, you know, the guy's a genius. He's a multi-billionaire. I'm not saying he was scrupulous all the time, but he did what he did. With that being said, and I know I made a joke about it last week in terms of pro wrestling USA, where, you know, the AWA, the NWA, and these different promoters – tried to get together to try to fight Vince in like 84 to 86 time period. And Gagne was known for saying that Jimmy Crockett was trying to steal AWA talent. And there was all kinds of stories like that. Mm-hmm. But do you think that that was part of the problem that all these different promoters tried to get together to combat but they were looking out for their best interests instead of looking for the greater good. You know, you know what happened, Jonathan, and part of this is just my own speculation over the years or my own uh, take on it. The territorial system as it was had worked so well for almost four decades. Uh, You had the fifties, the sixties, the seventies and the eighties. The territorial system was, for the most part, a well-oiled machine. Not saying it was always perfect, but it worked. The wrestlers could, as independent contractors, could go from territory to territory, wrestle there as long as they wanted, go to a different territory, change their shtick, be something different or be the same, uh, negotiate their their uh, their own money, whatever they wanted to do. There was always a place for it. And when when Vince came in and decided he was going to invade all these neighborhoods that in the past never would have happened, because there was always that unwritten line, that invisible fence, that I won't go into your yard and you won't come into mine. In other words, promote in my city, I won't promote in your city. And they didn't have to, they didn't have to say anything. It was just a gentleman's agreement. When Vince started doing the the national expansion and the raids of the territories, the the, the promoters did. Now you got to remember too that a lot of these promoters in 1985 and into the 90s, a lot of these old guard of promoters were guys that were now in their 50s and 60s, maybe older. Vern was 60 years old, and you you all of a sudden. Your, your whole world behind you that has been faithful to you for four decades is changing. Sometimes they didn't know how to fix it. 
They didn't want to fix it. They didn't believe it was broken. And I, I think you could talk to most promoters of that time. And Vern was one of them. He felt that Vince McMahon was going to fall in his face. It was, it was going to happen for a year here. He was going to have some success, but then eventually he was going to go away. There had been promotional wars in past decades where two promoters would go at it in the town, try to take control. But in the end, usually one left. And usually the one that was there originally stayed. So they just figured that it wasn't going to happen. It wasn't, he wasn't going to succeed. And so in their lame effort, well, let's all get together and we'll promote this supercard against them. And then they'd go into his cities and promote these supercards. The problem was, is none of them wanted to, uh, they all wanted to be in control. Let's put it that way. Vern wanted to be at. in control. Jimmy Crockett wanted to be in control. Jerry Jarrett wanted to be in control. Fritz von Erich wanted to be in control. And whoever else was involved. In it. And it's the old adage where you, I know this is, we talked about politically correctness before, but you can't have too many chiefs. Everybody can't be the chief. You got to have a boss. Somebody has to take charge. You have to have one person that is ultimately making the decisions. And those promoters, they couldn't they couldn't agree on it. They would, well, I'm going to bring in my guys, and I'll bring in my guys, and I want my guys on this part of the card, and I want my guys in this match, and, you know, I want this title. And, and they were all, instead of coming together and saying, whew, none of this matters, we're just going to put on a super show, they couldn't do it. They didn't do it. I don't know if you ever watched the, the, the video is good, but it's not 100% accurate. And I'm talking about the WWF's DVD called the Spectacular, I think it's called the Spectacular Legacy of the AWA. I've seen it, yes. Okay, I've watched it. It's good, but it's not factual. The, the first half of it, Vern and Greg and talking about the AWA, they got so much stuff mixed up in my my what little hair I have left curls. And Vince, he made a comment in there, which I thought was kind of ironic at the time, because he made this video back in the 90s, this DVD. But he made a comment when he was asked by the interviewer. He said, did you go in and did you uh, try to take Vern Gagne's territory? Did you try to put him out of business? And, and what about these other promoters? And Vince, and I'm summarizing here now, I'm not quoting exactly. You can watch the video to see what I'm talking about. But Vince made the comic or the comment something to the effect of, I didn't do a thing. I just sat back and I watched them all explode. And he did. You know, if Vern and Jarrett and all these others could have gotten along, yeah, maybe as a superpower, they could have overtaken the WWE, combined it, but they didn't. And then there was all the con controversy about who was supposed to pay who, who didn't pay who, and I didn't get paid from this guy. And it, it the whole thing, the whole pro wrestling USA, I think is what they called it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think that's what it was called. It just, it became a a bomb that blew up and it was a huge explosion. And by that time, then it was over because Vince didn't need to do any more. 
and say what you want about Vince. And obviously, I grew up on Vince's product and everything else like that. But right, wrong, and different as we were, if we were to go through the history of the business and his, even just his product over the years, which is now TKO, all that stuff with the merger. Yeah, yeah. But you hit it on the head there. Right, wrong, and different. When it came to the WWF, then WWE and whatnot, it was Vince was the boss. Vince had the final say on what he wanted on his product. Mm-hmm. Whether fans or guys like us liked it or not, he made the final decision on what happened with his product. And it's a shame that that didn't happen when these other folks, for whatever reason, financially or whatnot, you know, well, who knows where the business would be. Well, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it, it goes back to the simplest uh, comment. And now we're 40 years removed because December right now, I pointed this out to you. We are in December. And right now it's 40 years since Hulk Hogan left. Think about that. 1984. Yeah. Or it was, it was 1983, December of 1983. And he won in, yeah. And he won yep, in 90, He jumped over. 84. And in 84, we had the war going on. So it has been 40 years and still there are those diehards out there who will say, well, if Vern Gagne would have put the title on Hulk Hogan, Hogan would have never left and the AWA would still be around. That, that's To me at this point, that's the nuttiest comment I hear because it wasn't going to happen. I, and I still maintain in my heart of hearts that with or without Hogan, I think Hogan was the man that made it easier. But with or without Hogan, I honestly believe, I honestly believe that Vince McMahon would still have succeeded. It would just have taken maybe a little bit longer and maybe a few more things he had to do to make it work. I do believe that in my heart. And and if Hogan would have been champ and Vern would have given him the title, which he wasn't going to do, then that's the part of the stubbornness. Maybe Vern should have. I mean, I'm not saying it wouldn't have helped the matter. If, if, because the people wanted Hogan. Everybody in the AWA wanted Hogan as the champion. But Vern was drawing so well with a heel champion and Bobby Heenan as his manager. He had the perfect formula. And, and he had succeeded with it for six years. Or well, at that point, it's nine years he had. Eight years he had been working well with it. He didn't need to make a change. And the other side was Hogan had the same situation that Hanson had. He was wrestling back and forth in Japan. During the time, during his stay in the AWA, Hogan came here, I think it was, I think it was eight without looking, I think it was 81, the beginning of 81 or something. So he was here after about, Rocky Three. Yeah. And and he was here, but he would be here for a couple matches, then he'd be gone for a month or two. Then he'd be here and then he'd be gone. Well, he was doing Japan. And, and Vern, it was the same thing. You know, I, I got this guy who was a part-time employee. And I think if you'd have put the title on Vern, I think the title would have still ended up being tossed in a basket. You remember what Medusa, you mentioned Medusa. You remember yeah. when she when she trashed the AWA ladies' belt? On Nitro. On Nitro? Well, that's what Hogan would have done. I mean, I don't know that for fact, but I'm just saying that's a scenario. Because Vince was going to get him for more money. And how much money can Vern pay? You know, 
Um, and then on, in its simplest form, this goes back to me, and this is my personal ethics. I don't ever feel the employee should be able to dictate to the boss or the company head what I want or what I will do or won't do. And that's what Hogan was doing. So. And I know it's shit and giggles. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And, and, and for those listening, when they do hear this, if they disagree with me, that's cool. I, I mean, I don't care. Let us know, I think, please. I think, well, yeah, let me know. You know, Shire's a radical. Get him off the air. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, again, that goes a lot, you know, when we talked about how the older we get, the more we see, the more we recognize, you know, sometimes we think we have some solutions that the younger ones aren't thinking about or don't get, I mean, I don't think we talk anymore. And that's what happened in the, in the promotional wars. Nobody, nobody was talking. Everybody was trying to steal this guy and take that guy and don't tell him and, and uh, I'll pay you this. And it, it becomes such boy from 1985 to 90 and then into the nineties with the remaining promotions. It was so ugly. It was so ugly. Just terrible. Well, for shits and giggles, and I know it's hindsight and all that fun jazz, but if Hogan wasn't the guy for Vince, who mm -hmm. could have been that guy from that era to be that top star, do you think? I've heard some people say Dusty could have been plugged in there because he was charismatic and everything. But who do you think, knowing the business of that time period, could have been that Hogan I, well, spot? We we know we know all the players that we had from the various territories. Yeah. Um, and like I said, had it not been Hogan, I I think there could have been some others that maybe would have made it happen, but it would have taken longer to get over because Hogan was magic right away. You know, Hogan Who would was you the guy put in that spot. But but you're the promoter. You're Vince. I I think if I would have been Vince at that moment in time, um, I would have done my best to make it Ric Flair. Flair was still young enough, good enough, charismatic as hell enough to pull it off. And as it was, we never got, the WWE never got, Flair until wasn't it towards the the 91. later eight, 91 yeah so I mean it'd been seven years that he was I, I think that's that's the other guy um a lot of people I've heard I heard somebody one time say well Randy Savage could have fit in there I don't think Randy was yet ready for it I'm not saying yeah. he couldn't have been down the road because he was he was good in his character um but you know beyond that I don't think I don't picture Dusty doing it. Um, I think he, his niche was the South, and I don't know that on a national basis he'd have gotten over. I think Ric Flair, um, if 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 Hogan wouldn't have been available and Vince would have went after Flair and made him the Hogan, you know, beating Backlund or whatever he did for the title, or Iron well, he... In that instance, he wouldn't even have had to put Cosro in there. He could have just had Flair yeah. beat Backlund. Yeah. They could have pulled that off. They eliminated the couple-week transitional change. 
Yeah. Because I always think of, and I grew up a Hogan fan, but, yeah, and I have different opinions because interviews he's done and different things you hear about recent times. Oh, he's a liar. He's this. He's that. I'm not discrediting, you know what I mean, what he did career-wise. But I always, when it comes to that period and leading into WrestleMania 1 and all that fun stuff, as the things were changing, I think of something that Roddy Piper not only told me, but said publicly when he was still around in terms of, because obviously that was the big feud, Hogan Piper. And people, Piper always put it this way. Did people pay to see Hogan or did they pay to see Hogan come kick my ass? Well, I think what you have to remember when Vince, what we have to look at too, I had said that if I didn't have Hogan and I was the promoter, I would have, uh, I would have said Ric Flair. You got to remember that at that time, Flair was a heel. And yes. I think the key thing was, is that Vince wanted a baby face. And the other thing was, is that that was the era where it wasn't so much that Hulk Hogan, take away his charisma and everything, but it was his look. You know, the six foot eight, whatever the heck he was, and bulging muscles and tan. And, you know, he was an Adonis to, to their, their scheme of things. And I think that's what Vince wanted. Rick, like yeah. The, it's like, yes, the Sports Illustrated in 85. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Rick Flair would not have quite fit the build stature, but we know that Flair was capable of being a, a, a baby face. So, you know, it's possible that he could have went with Rick Flair as a baby. But I, I don't think he wanted to. The WWF in general, they, from from Bruno San Martino down, they believed that a babyface had to be champion. With the exception, you know, we had the interim champion for a week or two with Koloff and Stasiak. And then we had the one year with Superstar. But that that's it. From, from 1963 to... I don't know when we had babyface champion. They didn't. Ninety three. Did yeah, probably ninety three. Yeah. Before you had a long term with guys like Yokozuna and things like that. Yeah. We had a long term yeah. heel champ. Right. So I don't know. I heard somebody the other day say that they thought Ricky Martel, when he became the model, that that was a perfect gimmick for him. I didn't care for the gimmick. I thought they destroyed a good worker and a good wrestler. He's boring as hell on the microphone, but he was exciting as everything to watch him in the ring. I loved Ricky Martel. Oh, he was great. You know, as a baby face. He was, he was a high flyer. He was believable. He wrestled. Um, he could, he could brawl his matches with Stan Hansen. Oh my God. They were off the charts. I mean, Rick was toe to toe with him. They were real. They, they, they made you believe. So, I you know, but that was a few years later when the model came in. That was in the 90s. Uh, I, was a, I don't know. I don't know if you saw him, but uh, did you ever see Ricky's, Ricky Martel's brother? Uh, 
Mad Dog, uh, or what was he? Michelle. He had Michelle, an older brother Mike? who got him into the business. Yeah, Michael, or was it Michael or Michelle or however he pronounced it? I don't remember. No, I didn't. I didn't see him wrestle. Okay. But he had a couple of. He had two brothers, I think. The one yeah, was I think the Mad Dog one. He he had a Mad Dog name. He was I think wasn't he killed in a car accident? Yeah, he, Michael. I think it was. That died in the accident. Spelled, it's spelled differently, not the normal Michael way. But M I C H E L. Yeah, it was uh, like the Canadian. Mad, Canadian yeah, my, Mad Dog French, Mike. French yeah. yeah. No, I never, died in a car never saw him. Um, you know, the thing is, here we are, like we said, 40 years removed right now. And to go back and, and talk, you know, about what coulda, shoulda, woulda. Um, it's almost to the point where it's gonna. We're gonna talk about it forty more years, but we should drop it already because um, we'll never know the answers. You know, I don't know. Maybe I, Bruiser Brody. Brody could be. A, I've heard a, that a, name kicked around for Bro, that. Brody Brody could be a baby face. He was over like hotcakes in in Texas as a baby with the Von Erichs. You know, if Vince wanted to, but again. Yeah, you're dealing with the, with the spark plug again. Can you trust him? You know, is he going to show up at the matches? Is he going to hold me up for more money? Is he going to tell me he's not going to not going to lose tonight? You know, whatever. Have you ever? I know I briefly mentioned him uh, as far as when the things were changing, but did you have any good interactions with uh, Andre the Giant? No, no. I tell you what. Weird. Well, he was only in and out, you know, so sporadically. Um, I never even met Andre. Never. He would, you know, Man. he'd come in when, uh, and he was, he was, his, he was, his bookings were handled by Vince Senior. Yes. You knew that. Um, and Vince that. would, would send Andre to a territory for, you know, a four week period. And the, the territory could run Andre around the horn of the various cards. So we would get Andre here in the AWA, um, usually from about 75 on, 1975 on, we got him once a year or, or once a year or so. But, you know, you'd have four or five weeks of cards. And in each city, you might get him once or twice, but you'd have five or six cards around the horn that he would be on. So wasn't really, I had no interaction with him at all. And you may or may not have seen things along the years, but obviously we talked about in part one about the respect that you had earned because you showed respect for what everybody did and they gave you the respect in return. But did you see any good ribs along the way? No, I can't say that I did. I, I was more privy to the stories. I know Red Bastine, he would chuckle at times about different things that they would do. And, you know, you talk about being PC, politically correct. You know, some of the stuff that they would do when they were on the road, <laughs> uh, you know, and they tell the story and you go, you, you know, I had that's even that's nasty, even you know. Uh, I, I would hear more about it. 
and 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 then you know Jonathan I think sometimes things become sort of legend because they've been told over more and more there's the, the telegraph there's the telephone or telephone telegraph telewrestler yeah well you know there's the one about uh uh Johnny Valentine putting a uh the asthma the asthma thing with Jay York the Alaskan and uh Harley pulled a gun all that fun stuff you know you you hear yeah you hear these things and uh the, here here's the funny thing that I learned about wrestlers and and I always paraphrase this by saying I have nothing but great respect for every single guy that laced up the boots put on the trunks and got in the ring yeah and I found it to be especially true when I would have the opportunity to be near a dressing room or in a in a locker room when you'd hear the boys talking. But even more so at Cauliflower Alley, at a place like that, when they would get together after years of not seeing each other. And the stories they would be laughing about or talking about. The irony is, is that some of the stuff they were saying either never happened, didn't happen the way they say it, or it, it just, they, they, and then here's where I'm leading to. In 2013, I was down at the Gulf Coast reunion, which was held annually back then around February, March of every year. It was in Alabama. And I'm at this, we were sitting in the hotel and I'll tell you, some of the guys you may not even recognize because some of them were Southern guys, but there was Joe Turner, uh, uh, Bill Bowman, and those two guys, they had wrestled as medics at one time, a version of the medics or the interns. They had wrestled as the Sky Brothers together. They were big stars down south in the Gulf Coast. They were there. Les Thatcher was there. Um, Love Tess. Les, per excuse me. Percy Pringle, or, uh, yeah, Percy Pringle was there. there. There were a bunch of guys. And here was the fun part. I was sitting and we were in, we were in one of the hotel rooms and I was sitting over in the corner, had a, had a bottle of water in my hand and I'm just sitting there. Honest to God, they're telling these stories and every one of them were Hulk Hogan. They, they, they were the Hulk Hogan of the business. They drew more money. They sold out this place. Our feud took the roof off of this, this arena, you know, and the Hanging truth from was, the rafters. <laughs> yes. But here, here was the beauty of it. Turner, and the reason I mentioned Turner and Bowman, they both were wearing a T-shirt. And on the T-shirt, it said, and I thought this was hilarious and appropriate. It said, the older I get, the better I was. They both had the T-shirt on. And I was, I was sitting over in the corner, and I'm just listening. I love the stories. You know, when I remember when we hooked up in the arena and, you know, when that chair came flying over and this happened and that happened. And then I read their T-shirts and I thought, you know, you guys, you you do know it. The older you are, the better you are. Like the Toby Keith song says, I ain't as good as I once was, but I was good once as I ever was. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Send that to me in a text. I will. Please yeah, send I will. that to me. Make a note. Um, yeah. Anyway. All right. Aren't we getting close to another Broadway here? Yes. We are just about <laughs> at the two hour mark again. You know, I, I ran for president halfway through this. 
<laughs> but I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. Hey, folks, it's just fun. Yeah, uh, we we're, we have fun. We're having a good conversation. Shire 2024, folks. No, but uh, last personal question with the business. Who is, and I know it could be tough because we're talking different errors and stuff, but who would you say is your favorite talent of all time? I have an idea where you might go in the bit I've gotten to know you the past month or so. But who do you think your favorite talent was? Well, when you say favorite talent, it's like you say, well, who was your favorite wrestler of all time? And uh, if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you know that I have identified one person that I would rank at the top. But I always answer the question this way. If you ask me who my favorite, you got to remember, I've been watching wrestling since 1959 on a regular basis. And I actually saw it before that as early as 57 when I was six years old and 57 and 58, I saw wrestling. I mean, it's a little more cloudy for me as a kid, but I, I saw it. So, and, and having the opportunity over the decades to travel to different territories and pretty much seeing just about every major star from the, I'm going to say from the 60s through the 90s, I saw every, pretty much every main event guy. I had a chance to either see him live or certainly see him uh, on TV. But I always take the attitude that if you see a guy on a tape match, you're not really getting the full deal because you really, to sit live is the flavor. That's why I, I miss the arena, the house shows. So to answer your question, I have uh, many favorites. I have guys that I just, I, I could watch them wrestle 24-7. And I, I, they're my favorites. And to sit there and juggle them and put them in order, well, when I watch this match, he's my favorite. But if I watch this match, well, now that one's my favorite. That's what it comes down to. But having seen all these guys and then also having the opportunity to have some of them as friends, um, I, I, I want you to tell me who you think I was going to pick. And I'll be I honest, say- I'll tell you. I would say towards the top of that list, for obvious reasons, would be Nick Bockwinkle. Well, Nick Nick would definitely be near the top, but he wouldn't be my favorite. Okay. And I love Nick. Okay. See, that's why I was gonna I was gonna try to tell you that because Nick was absolutely I could watch him wrestle all day. And he was he was a good friend. I think about it right now during Christmas season because uh, we were making out Christmas cards today, my wife and I, and we made out a Christmas card to Darlene, Nick's wife, widow. We we send her one every year. We, she sends us one. We used to get a call from Nick at Christmas, call on the phone, talk. Uh, so, yeah, I miss him. He's a good guy, and he's he's one of my favorite wrestlers. But if you've watched other podcasts, when I when push comes to shove, if I think about one man above all, it's Dick Byer, the destroyer, Dr. X. He was Dr. X for us. He's the man. He is the guy that if I had, if you put a gun to my head and said, you're going to tell us number one, or we're going to pull the trigger. I'm going to say Dick Byer. And, and I uh, will say, go to episode or part one to hear both the 
Dr. X or Destroyer story of Dick Byer yeah. and yeah, we talked about all that, that fun stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, I, I have, I mean, I can, if, if you gave me a piece of paper, I could sit there and list favorite wrestlers, uh, but try to rank them. The only, there's only two that I rank one and two. And you'd never yeah. guess number two. I know you would. I, I've admitted it on other podcasts, unless you've listened. Okay. But. Okay. So, are we going Dick Byer number one? Oh, Dick Byer is number one. If you put okay. a gun to my head, Dick okay. Byer is my number yeah. one personal all-time favorite. All right. So, if we're going Dick there, and obviously Nick's a favorite. And I'm just going, I haven't listened to a lot of the shows, but I'm just going on personal experience with you. Huh, who would be that number two spot? I don't think you're going to get I, it. Hmm, I'm, now I'm trying to deep dive here. Okay. And I know we talked about him last week. But no, I don't think just from the regional wise, I'm I, thinking I think uh, Larry Henning. No. Okay. Larry. Larry's one of my favorites. I love Larry. Who would be in that two spot then? Number two. I only have. I only have two that are completely automatic. Everybody else that's a favorite, they're just. They're just a favorite. Okay. I put them in no order. Uh, number two, and I, I. You've heard of him, I bet, but hard boiled Haggerty. Hmm. Okay. And I bet you've never even seen Hard Boiled Haggerty. But I've heard the stories. I haven't seen Hard Boiled Haggerty. Uh, I've watched him as a kid in the in late fifties, very early sixties. He was uh, he was the he was a, he was what you call a at any given time in the territory. He was both a heel and he was a babyface. Okay. And he was able to pull that. He was able to pull that off. It depended on his opponent. He was one of the few guys I've ever seen that can do that in a territory. And he did it in the AWA. I don't know how well he did it out in California, but on the microphone, uh, he was about as close to Nick Bockwinkle as you're going to get. He was very low key, very sophisticated, arrogant, but precise he could put you down or he could compliment you and in the ring he was just poetry in motion he was so good if he was the bad guy he could be as bad as they come and when he was the good guy the fans loved him to the hill and in the twin cities which is where my home was for you know growing up as a kid we had a lot of hard-boiled Haggerty. And he had a long-running feud with Vern Gagne. Now, grant you, when he was with against Vern, Haggerty was he was the bad guy. But he could wrestle Vern this week, and next week he could be in the main event wrestling the, another heel. And Haggerty, they were cheering him to the rafters. He he ne he never really was completely one or the other. He was right down the middle, and that's the way he wrestled. Now, he also, I don't know if you know this, but he became an actor after leaving the ring. And uh, I've heard that. He, he's, he became an actor. Uh, 
some, in the seventies, there, there isn't, I could name you, you could look it up. There's maybe six, seven, eight movies, major motion pictures that he was in a lot of sitcoms on TV. Uh, he was in, you ever watched, but you don't, you don't even, he was a regular in shows on, in, uh, uh, the seventies and the eighties, a lot of times just a bit actor. I mean, he wasn't the star, but, uh, he went to an acting career because he wanted to, you know, slow down in wrestling. The other thing I like about him is that he and Dr. R Dick Byer, he and Dick Byer were also friends and tag team partners and they were opponents. Uh, they were tag team partners out in California. Haggerty and the Destroyer were tag champs in uh, Los Angeles. WWA title out there. Great team. And that's when Dick was the Destroyer. And then he was, uh, he wrestled Dick here in the Twin Cities when Dick was Dr. X. Haggerty came in as a, as a, uh, uh, I'm going to unmask these, this freak. I don't want to find out who he is. You know, well, they were friends. You know, that was the fun part of it, but their matches were great. They loved each other. They were good guys. And Dick Byer sat in, in my wrestling room and I had a picture of him and Haggerty together that I showed him. And I wanted Dick to sign it because I had had Haggerty sign it years ago and I wanted Dick to sign it. He did for me. And then he put something at the bottom of it and he told me what it meant. The bottom of the picture of him and Haggerty, he said, he wrote the word unanimity. Hmm. And you say, well, that's not even a word. Unanimity. That's what he wrote. Unanimity. And I asked him, I says, what is that? He said, that's what we used to call ourselves and get the fans confused out in California when we were a team. We bragged that we had unanimity, whatever it was. And he put it on the picture. So it's kind of cool. But uh, yeah, those are my number one and number two. Everybody else, I have a I have I could I could list you 20, 25 guys that I really loved, but they would never be number one and number two. Well, for from a personal standpoint. Not only do I appreciate your time, but I know you have an extensive collection. And I will say this. If the girls don't want your stuff, I better <laughs> get a phone call because I would love to have some of the stuff you probably have over the years. I, uh, but well, go ahead. If you're ever uh, if you're ever in Minnesota. Come to the Twin Cities, you make sure you let me know in advance and we will get you to have a visit. Yes, I will make I it a point to do that. I don't invite everybody. Hey, I had I got family members that have never been in my wrestling room. I'm, I am very protective of it, but I, I will. I will. I let fans come in that I like people. I like. Um, my daughter teases me because above the door she gave me. I have it above my door that goes into the wrestling room. I have it up on the top of the door, on the entrance, and it says simply. Maximum occupancy one. Nice. <laughs> but uh, if you could mention both the book that I mentioned at the top and the Facebook group as well, again. You want to mention the Ric Flair book? No, I'm talking oh, your oh, my book. book? On the, yes. I want to mention the, your old school memories uh, group as well. Okay. Well, 
Hey guys, you know, as we get ready to close the doors on this marathon that we've had, I absolutely want to uh, thank everyone. I want to thank Jonathan. We've had some spirited conversation, a lot of opinions, a lot of facts, and a lot of fun. And if you want more fun, I want to invite you over to Facebook to my George Shires Wrestling Time Machine. You have to type in my name, S-C-H-I-R-E. Don't forget the C or you'll get lost somewhere in the World Wide Web. But George Shire's Wrestling Time Machine, it's all old wrestling, clippings, programs, photos, facts, stories, and all kinds of other stuff. And then if you'd like and you're so inclined, go to Amazon and order my Golden Age of Wrestling, Minnesota's Golden Age of Wrestling from Vern Gagne to the Road Warriors. It's basically a history of the AWA, the American Wrestling Alliance Association. And then also I have three record books. The AWA record books, they are chronological listings of all of the matches in all of the towns, the results, and lots of tidbits, trivia in bold print and pictures for you folks that like to see a picture of Bull Bolinsky or Mighty Igor or whoever it might be. Well, they're in there. And uh, three AWA record books, the 60s, and then two, one for the 70s, part one, 70 to 74, and part two, 75 to 79. And they're at Amazon as well. If you want to send me a private message and you'd like to have them autographed and purchased from me directly, I'm okay with that. We'll work out a deal. Send me a private message on Facebook and I'll tell you how to get it done. And then also... I want you to watch. I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention to the podcast that we've just put out here today and last week. Crazy Train Radio. It is, it's off the tracks, man. This is cool. And it's going to stay on the tracks because uh, we've been talking off air how we're going to do some crazy things down the road and bring back Brian Young and a few others and make it. We big. sure we want to bring him back, Brian Young? Well, have them stand in front of the train. We don't have to worry about it. Okay, yeah, we can do that. But <laughs> you got to have Brian back. He's the greatest. Uh, I, guy. Uh, of course, I I love teasing Brian. I always, yeah, you know, but, yeah. And Terry Sullivan, uh, you mentioned him, and Dave Brzezinski. Terry's you great. We got to get those guys. As a Nikita, get him back, and you know Rodney, have him back, and anybody else you've had. Um, we need to we need to talk old wrestling. We need to keep the the old history going. We need to keep the facts straight. And we want to talk about your favorites, your era, and all the fun that pro wrestling is, was, and still is for all of you that follow the product product is today. And if you have suggestions on some of those topics, please let us know, folks. But George, yeah. thank you so much. Jonathan, what a blast. I can't believe it. I I need to go get some water, man. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs? 
out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hi, this is Baby Doll. You're a perfect 10. And whenever you want to hear the best about wrestling, memories, stories, whatever we have to say, listen to Crazy Tearing Radio. They've got it all.